Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 26, Pope Sixtus II. All right, we got a second one. Is this our first second? This is our first second. <laughs> what a dumb sentence. <laughs> well, we're all about paradoxes here. What can I say? Now, until very recently, Pope Sixtus I was our lowest scoring pope, so we'll have to see if his successive namesake does any better. Okay, yeah, wow. Yeah, he doesn't have a whole lot to live up to. I think Sixtus I scored a whopping 7.75, so... Jeez, oh my goodness, that is low. Do you have any predictions expectations for this pope uh well we're still in persecution mm -hmm. so i assume he should probably stay low and not get persecuted but we'll see what he does yeah let's see how that goes for him so right off the bat the liber pontificalis tells us that sixtus was born in greece and that before he was a religious clergyman he was a philosopher oh Okay. But it is widely accepted now that this is the Liber Pontificalis doing what the Liber Pontificalis does and fudging and conflating two people into one person. They love to do this with the Sixtuses and everybody else. So this is because there was another man at the time called Sixtus in the Greek spelling with the X and the Y, who was a Greek philosopher and a student of Pythagoreanism, which is not math but same dude it's the same man it is the same man and this is a school of philosophical thought slash cult that pythagoras instituted that focused on his ideas of the metaphysical and a little bit of mystical mathematics pythagoreanism isn't really going to play into our actual pope man story here but as a side note i want to mention that Pythagoreans were explicitly forbidden from eating beans. There's no real reason given, aside from one small source that speculates that this is because they believed that farts were part of the human soul, and it's a problem <laughs> if too much was escaping. I cannot. <laughs> this story gets better. There's a reason I bring this up. All right. Is somebody really farty? Is it poopy anus? If we are to believe the legend, and, and this is a legend, not verified historical fact, Pythagoras actually died because he was running away from a mob and ended up at a bean field, which he either wouldn't enter because beans, or wouldn't eat the beans on his principles and ran out of energy and therefore was stabbed to death. I just... <laughs> okay, so... Part one, won't run into the bean field because even brushing up against beans will give you farts. Part two, <laughs> if he does run into the bean field, nobody's gonna grab beans by the handful to eat them like a marathon runner with a cliff bar. It's a ridiculous story, but this has actually been passed down through history, and so I felt the need to share it with you, even though we can say, what garbage, so... <laughs> There's actually um, 
a wonderful scene from Horrible Histories with stupid deaths where Pythagoras is brought before death to explain his death, and then death just continues to laugh at him and they tell this this story about the beans. Why didn't they tell us this in math class? It would have made algebra much more interesting. Could you imagine telling a bunch of middle schoolers that farts were part of the human soul? <laughs> but, I mean, this is a tangent because this Pythagorean Sixtus is clearly not our Sixtus Pope Man, so... But we just had to go there. So our Pope Man eats beans and farts. He probably does. <laughs> we have no verified evidence, but we can say definitely. <laughs> so our Sixtus would have been born in Rome. And for once, we have no idea what his father's name was. The Liber Pontificalis doesn't bother to tell us. But we can say by this time that his own name, Sixtus, spelt in that old Greek spelling with the X and the Y, meant that he was probably of some Greek heritage, so they probably got that part at least a little right. And that this time, instead of being Sixtus, like our first pope, who was called Sixtus for being the sixth pope after Peter, this one definitely meant polished. And we talked about this a little bit with our first Pope Sixtus that generally having that name meant like baldy. Yeah. But this is his birth name. So it probably was more associated with this idea of like Christian purity. So like you polish silver and you polish turds. There's not very many things you go around polishing. How often do you polish a turd? I just need to know. Mythbusters did once. They got it real shiny. <laughs> <laughs> so from this, <laughs> we could say that he was probably born into Christianity. And at some point, he entered the church. And we have one statement about his impact on the church as he's rising through the ranks. And this comes from Pontius, who wrote the biography of our old friend, Bishop Cyprian of Carthage. And he says that Sixtus was a, quote, good and peaceful priest, end quote. That's it. All right. And since we've just seen, like, the breakdown of the relationship of the head of the church and many prominent bishops last week with Stephen refusing to take counsel, scumbag Steve being scumbag Steve, he's breaking with Cyprian, he's not taking counsel from his bishops, so... Maybe the fact that Sixtus is a good and peaceful priest is a lot more appealing to the church right now. Either way, he's elected to the papacy in August of 257, and for a short while, it seems to be smooth sailing. He doesn't really seem to be garnering the tension of Valerian persecutions, and he's able to focus on those internal divisions in the church that had been left by Stephen. Refresher, this had primarily been over the issue of heretical baptism, or baptism and rebaptism, where the African and Asiatic bishops were requiring anybody who had left the church with the Novatian Schism, or who had been baptized by a heretic, to be rebaptized into the church, whereas Pope Stephen maintained that baptism needed to happen only once, only once even if it was conducted by heretics, as long as it had been done with the proper form and in the name of the Trinity. We don't know exactly how he does it, due to the whole lack of sources and records, although there is a 
brief mention that perhaps he was more receptive to the council of Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria than Stephen had been, but Sixtus is actually able to reconcile with the African and Asian bishops and sends an envoy to Cyprian to restore their relationship. And this is despite the fact that he actually upheld Stephen's position and confirmed that baptism was a once-in-a-lifetime sacrament and that rebaptism would not be accepted. So he's not changing his position on this and he's upholding what Stephen said, but he doesn't want to threaten to excommunicate people and he wants to, you know, maybe take a softer line about it. We can assume that part of why this issue gets resolved is that because Sixtus does decide to tolerate the individuals who had already been rebaptized rather than condemning them, and that by being conciliatory with, you know, Asian and African bishops over the differing opinion rather than just threatening them, you can catch a lot more flies with honey type thing. Makes sense. And and seriously, what are you going to do for the people that have already been rebaptized? Are you going to say, oh, no, oh, no, now you can't be part of the church, but we'll let all the people who committed idolatry back in? Like, what are you really going to do? But he did do it, and he did get them to come back on side. And the official church position of baptism as a single sacrament, not to be repeated, wins out in history. It's just that... Now everyone has accepted it, and the church isn't about to break apart into tiny smithereens over it. Unfortunately, beyond that, it's going to be very hard to say what else he might have done, aside from a single December ordination of seven deacons, four priests, two bishops. Which is interesting, because my version that I've been using of the Liber Pontificalis didn't have this, but another version I tracked down did say this. Yeah, we can't not say that he didn't ordain people, oh no. Yeah, I just feel like maybe the version I have is slacking a little bit. No father's name, no ordinations, like what are you doing? Conflating him with a Pythagorean? Is that all you have? But anyways, we actually, even though we can't talk about what he did, we can talk about some writings. Because there are some old sources that will tell you that Pope Sixtus II is the author of a text called The Sentences of Sixtus, or The Ring of Sixtus. And most of this confusion seems to come from Tyrannius Rufinus, a monk historian who is the one who credited the Pope as the author. We see this text mentioned in origin around this time period, so we know it's from the right era of time that this is an actual document that existed. But here's the problem. The text is most absolutely, certainly, originally, a Pythagorean philosophical text written by our Greek philosopher Sixtus that we mentioned before. Oh no. That just got later adapted and modified into Christian theology on asceticism. Tyrannosaurus no. Yeah, Tyrannosaurus no took this, uh, this document on Pythagorean living which is literally just a collection of sentences. Like, it's not a work. It's not a, an argument that is flowing and comprehensive. It is literally just, like, 450 sentences about life. It's just a list. Yeah, pretty much. So it wouldn't have been that hard to edit something like that. 
that is a philosophical idea into something that represents Christianity. You will still find some sources that will argue that this document is a fundamental, foundational Christian treatise on asceticism, like Daniele Perivalo's book, The Sentences of Sextus and the Origin of Christian Asceticism. And, I mean, it could be. We don't know. I mean, we can be sure that regardless of the importance of the modified document, it's not written by Sixtus II, Pope Man. But it may still be considered foundational to Christian asceticism by whoever altered the document. That's fine. The Catholic Encyclopedia also says that he was also once thought to have been responsible for a text called the Ad Novationantum, which is against Novation. Some people think Sixtus II wrote it. Some people think Cyprian wrote it. I would assume Cyprian wrote it. But Cyprian wrote a lot of things that we actually have about Novation, and we're going to get into that in his bonus episode on Patreon. This one in particular, historians now think neither of these men wrote it, and it's currently referred to as anonymously authored, so... Just somebody else with some salt to throw. Yeah, there were, oh gosh, there's going to be so many people with a lot of salt to throw at Novation. But anyways, neither of these men wrote this document. So basically, even though Sixtus has these potential writing things attributed to him, he probably wrote none of them. But it's after this point of restoring church unity and not writing philosophical books that things start to change for the Pope. Not for the good. (laughs) What sort of changes? Well, Emperor Valerian, who had kind of sort of led off on the persecutions for a bit, was having a real bad time as an emperor, and everything was falling apart for him. And I'm not going to be any more spoilery on his life, because then you wouldn't have a reason to go to Totalis Rankium, so go to them, listen to their episode on him, it's great. Either way... He's having a real bad time, and this causes him to grow really, really paranoid that one of the reasons he's having such a bad time is that he's eased up on Christian persecution and that angered the gods, so they're holding him accountable for not dealing with the Christians by punishing him in horrible, horrible ways. So you know how this is going to (laughs) go. He doubles down super hard and forbade any form of Christian services to be held anywhere in the empire whatsoever. Ooh, wow. He also ordered that all of the Christian clergy, especially the leaders, should be put to death immediately. Like, right away. Get them now. So, Cyprian tells us that these persecutions came back hard and fast, and that the prefects of the city were all too happy to go after the Christians on the daily to confiscate their property demand sacrifices to pagan gods, and turn over anybody who is recalcitrant about it to be executed. Back on that. When the emperor's having a bad time, the Christians are going to have a bad time. But of course, Christians are stubborn and feisty, and uh, this isn't going to get them down because they will continue to hold Christian services. After all, churches had now designated Christian land where they might be able to hide away and hold masses and ceremonies undetected in the caverns of the cemeteries. 
The problem comes with that they know that the church owns this. It's not really a secret if you're doing it in the place that you own. Well, it's not technically legally theirs, mm. but they, yeah, it's, it's theirs. This is exactly what Sixtus does. He is going to hold religious assemblies and the Eucharist in the underground chapel at the cemetery of the Praetextatus and the Catacombs of Calixtus. And they continuously just, even though, you know, this is the land we own, they might be looking for us here, let's change the time of day or the location or where in the catacombs we're going to meet. They just constantly keep moving it and thinking that, okay, this is going to prevent the Romans from figuring out exactly where we are at any given time. Can you guess how well <laughs> this is going to go for him? I just, this just, it sounds like, you know, when a three-year-old puts like a blanket on their head and goes, you can't see me. Yep, that's, that's pretty much exactly how it goes for him. Because on August 6th of 258, during one of these underground meetings, specifically at Praetextatus, Roman soldiers burst into the catacombs, arrest everyone that they can get their hands on, and behead Pope Sixtus II on the spot where he sat in his chair. So that bloodstained chair that we talked about with Pope Stephen, this is the actual version of that story, that he, that Pope Sixtus II is immediately decapitated while presiding over Mass. And he didn't know who, who was that, like, gung-ho about this job, that they ran in and then ran up onto the altar and chopped someone's head off. Roman prefects, dude. They are all about it. <laughs> Well, and I mean, I'm going to have to put a damper onto you because there are some stories that have a different version of this and it's not so immediate. In some stories, he had the opportunity to escape and other members of the crowd offered themselves to the prefects and the soldiers in his stead, but that he wasn't having any of that and then willingly submitted himself for execution. And then one source, Prudentius, cites him as being martyred by a crucifixion for some reason. But in any other source, beheading. Yeah, just not a thing. So um, there's also some suggestion that he might have been arrested and then brought before a tribunal for sentencing and then brought back to the cemetery for execution. <laughs> that's a lot of traveling. Yeah, that's a whole lot of back and forth for something you know is going to happen. Like, there's there's no way. Why even bring a tribunal into it? Like, who are you trying to fool? Seven other deacons will also be martyred in this ambush. Four are executed on the spot with him, and that's Januarius, Vincent, Magnus, and Stephen. And two more get executed that evening, Felicimus and Agapius. And then St. Lawrence, his most well-known and prominent deacon, was executed on August 10th, and his death is definitely unique. We discussed it recently on our patron episode about Holy Ween, so uh, we're not going to talk about it here. You can, you can join us on Patreon or do a Google. Do a Google. Do, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's not a secret. Absolutely not spoilers. This is not a good time for the church. They've just lost... The Pope and seven pretty influential deacons. That's a lot. So Sixtus and the deacons that were executed with him, except for two of them, would be buried in the cemetery of St. Calixtus in a service overseen by Justin the Confessor, 
where he's going to become one of the most revered martyrs of the whole early church with St. Lawrence. And their tombs will become the most visited sites of religious homage for a long time to come. The two that didn't get buried with him, by the way, are in Praetextatus, pretty much on the spot where things went down. So allegedly, behind Sixtus's tomb, like where he was actually buried, the bloody chair in which he had been sitting when he was beheaded was also enshrined and preserved as long as they were able to do that. Because, you know, wood <laughs> doesn't generally last. And this is probably one of the main reasons that this becomes such an important site for reverence to the martyrs, because where else are you going to get intense physical evidence of what happened? This is going to bring the pilgrims and massive, massive attention. Now, in the late 4th century, Pope Damasus I would erect a new epitaph on the site of Sixtus's tomb, which was inscribed with the axe of his martyrdom, and it reads, At the time when the sword pierced the bowels of the mother, I, buried here, taught as pastor the word of God, when suddenly the soldiers rushed in and dragged me from the chair. The faithful offered their necks to the sword, but as soon as the pastor saw the ones who wished to rob him of the palm of martyrdom, he was the first to offer himself and his own head, not tolerating that the pagan frenzy should harm the others. Christ, who gives recompense, made manifest the pastor's merit, preserving unharmed the flock. And this is kind of why the martyrdom of Sixtus kind of gets wrapped up in Stephen by mistake, because apparently in the works of St. Damasus, which are accounting of the Pope who erected this epitaph, uh, they cite this epitaph as being made for Stephen, so scribed on Well, you know. It happens. There's going to be a lot of that going out throughout history, so. Then when the excavations actually went down by Giovanni Battista de Rossi, his original tomb was thought to have belonged to Stephen for a long time. It wasn't until they were able to clear up the historical record that they realized, oh, this isn't actually Stephen, this is Sixtus. But this isn't the only place that Sixtus was memorialized either, because another epitaph called the Oratorium Sixty was installed at Praetextatus, supposedly directly on the spot where he had been martyred. And there are records of religious pilgrims visiting this site as late as the 8th century, so... It was there for a long time, and that's really cool, but I couldn't find any modern references to it or if it's still there, so probably been lost to history since then. Now, there's also a bit of a strange legend associated with this story of Sixtus's martyrdom, and it has to do with St. Lawrence, who was definitely the most important and trusted deacon in the Roman church at this time. If he had survived and not been killed in such a bizarre way, then he might have been the next pope. You know, he was the Calixtus to Zephyrinus in that way. He's in charge of a great deal of church admin and financial admin and almsgiving and all of those things that go to your right-hand man within the church. So the account by St. Ambrose in the Officiorum says that before his execution, or on his way to be executed, Sixtus somehow spoke with Lawrence. 
And Lawrence said to him, Where are you going, my dear father, without your son? Where are you hurrying off to, holy priest, without your deacon? Before you never mounted the altar of sacrifice without your servant, and now you wish to do it without me? So he's going, Where are you going, and why can't I come? And Sixtus replies to him in prophecy and says, After three days, you will follow me. If you find out that he's going to be martyred, I'm sure that's not what you want to hear. <laughs> no, no thanks. I don't want to go there. But obviously this is almost definitely a fake story and one that was added by later church historians and writers to enhance both the death of Sixtus and Lawrence because they are two of the most important martyrs in the church of the third century. But it still manages to show up in a fair number of places as good legends always do, like the apocryphal Acts of St. Lawrence and the poet Prudentius and the Liber Parastiphanon, or Crowns of Martyrdom, which is one of those records of all the martyrdom people. But before we move on and rate this dude, we have a final note to make about Novation. Because it's thought that in this time, Novation or Antipope was martyred in the same round of persecution. It happens. It keeps happening that way. I mean, obviously he wasn't actually like present at Sixtus's Eucharist in the catacombs. And, and we can say very easily that Valerian wouldn't have given a sh** about the difference of the Christian schisms any different from the Catholics. And he would have just been like, nah, you're just all Christians and I need you to die now. So he's dead now too. Now... It's time to rate him. Papatum infallium. He scores some huge points within the church for willingly accepting his martyrdom and not allowing anyone else to stand in his place. So the church really, really reveres Sixtus II for bravely facing his death for Christ, offering up his life so that other members of the congregation can get away. Captain going down with his ship sort of thing. Absolutely. He gets huge points in the church. This is what he is known for. So as a result, he's a strong symbol for hope in the church. If you're looking for prayers for courage, he's often invoked for that. He is one of the most popular martyrs represented in the church. Definitely one of the most popular pope martyrs, like hands down. And he actually gets mentioned in the Eucharistic prayer with a couple other familiar figures like Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus, Cornelius, Cyprian, and Lawrence. He is a big deal, even though we don't have a whole lot about his papacy, aside from the fact that he reconciles with Cyprian and the African and Asian churches. We just have this man who is extremely important within the church, and that has an impact. It's just, it seems like a lot of his importance is that he died spectacularly. But that's an impact, so we can rate him on that. What do you want to give him? All right, well, he, he got Cyprian back. Our poor, neglected boy. Can we do a bonus episode on him? I am in love. Oh, yeah. He's on the list for sure. So, yes, uh, he brings Cyprian back, and then he... Just he goes out with a bang, so I'll give him like a five at least. Okay, I think five is fair. I'm gonna give him two points for Cyprian, and I'm gonna give him two points for the impact that he has as a martyr in the church. And then um, I'm gonna give him 
an extra one, I guess, for being one of the biggest sites of holy pilgrimage in the early church. So I'm going to match your five. All right. And that'll give him a 10. So he's already scored higher than his previous namesake. Well, that's probably a good thing. Rook disprohibitum. Secret clandestine meetings are rebellion. Yeah, but Roma's being a little... Yeah, I don't know. I tried. When I can't find anything in this category, I'm going to start just making things up. And then he bought a hippopotamus. Well, okay, that's a little too on the nose for a later <laughs> quote, but... <laughs> that's going to be a long time away. It's not a hippo, but close. I know it's not a hippo. There will be popes with menageries, so you don't know for sure. I wouldn't want a hippo. I would not want a hippo either. Not for Christmas. No. Although I will say that that's probably my favorite Christmas song ever because I hate Christmas music with a fiery passion. And at least that one's ridiculous. I, I feel like he's going to rack up a scandal score just because we're talking about Christmas music, but... It's not his fault. Uh, no, I think it's a zero. Seculari impactum. There is something that, because he is so very, very impactful in the church at this time, he does affect us in a secular way because he is the subject of some very famous paintings. And these are, of course, going to affect me in a very real way because as a Renaissance historian, these people are very near and dear to my heart. He's the subject of a painting by Raphael called Our Lady and Child with St. Sixtus II and Barbara, and two paintings by Fra Angelico, which were commissioned by Pope Nicholas V, which are in the chapels of the Vatican, painted sometime in the 1400s. I am going to show you these paintings in Facium Sanctus. That's what I assumed. But I, we're going to score them here because they're not the ones that we're going to score him on. But the fact that they exist and it's, it's Raphael and it's Fra Angelico, which are two of the most substantial Renaissance painters of the era. Um, yeah, he's going to get some points for me for that one. So I'm going to give him a five bias all the way what do you want to give him oh man you know ah uh, geez okay i mean i did take an art history class that one time i went to college but it's not like i cared that much um i care so much give him like a three okay so he gets an eight for secular i impact him and yes before you email and tweet us in, yes, the paintings were painted for religious reasons, but if you go to the Vatican now, you do not have to be a Catholic to be like, holy shit, Raphael, or go to Florence and be like, oh my god, Fra Angelico, so bite me. Oh god, you're real. Man, you have some feelings about these paintings that I was not prepared for. <laughs> Get on board. Okay, so... Fossium Sanctus. This is the one that we are going to rate him on. Oh, why does he have such rosy cheeks? He does. He's got a forky beard again. It's barely a fork. It, it's it's like a like a cleft chin forky beard at the very bottom. He has a widow's peak in his tonsure. Are you noticing this? See, I wasn't sure if he was wearing a tiara. <laughs> It is now a tiara. <laughs> All right, so he's 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 wearing a tiara and he's got rosy cheeks and he's got 
he's got a real big bottom lip. <laughs> he so he's a he's a man, right? But he's got <laughs> he's got all of the characteristics besides like get rid of the tonsure and beard and put like a long wig on him. It like of a Victoria's Secret model. Like he's got the real <laughs> sad looking eyes. Oh my god. Nice rosy cheeks, a strong nose, and a big bottom lip. It's so true. Well, okay, we can have some uh, places to go with patron sainthood, so. I can give him, like, a six. Like, all right. if you take the beard off, you can imagine that he could be very pretty underneath there. I'm going to give him an eight just for your complete description there, because I'm buying it and I love it, so... Yep, uh, that is going to give him a 3.5. And now we have some paintings to look at. There's actually quite a few. We're going to skip the bad ones that we normally do because, you know, we just have way more exciting things to look at. And that man hasn't improved in his art at all. Oh, yeah, I'll just send it to you so you can say that he hasn't improved. There it is. <laughs> not, not so much of a Victoria's Secret model. Before we get to the famous paintings, this is another one that is a medieval painting representing his martyrdom. So there's that. Oh, I love medieval paintings. <laughs> they just make no sense at all. Yep, they're going to do some head whacking. Everyone has the same sheep face. So that's a thing. Now I will send you these famous paintings. We're going to start with the Fra Angelico paintings, and I will point out that the reason that he gets in some of these paintings is because he they love to do him with St. Lawrence. Yeah, okay, that would make sense. This is the first, and it's Pope Sixtus II consecrates St. Lawrence as deacon. So this is in the Vatican. Yeah, click it. Yeah, you gotta do some clicking. Making me do some clicking. <laughs> it's the hardest work you do during this recording. I <laughs> know. Why would you make me click something? It's a lot more impressive in person in terms of like the scale because Fra Angelico paints everything really, really big. But it's Fra Angelico was painting at the very, very early stages of the Renaissance. So if you look at this painting, like this is color and perspective when color and perspective are nouveau and exciting and whoa. It's nice, though. Like, it's... Yeah. Well done. Uh, I'm not sure why his Pope hat has a chin strap. Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, you know, it's heavy, so gotta keep it on. Do they come with chin straps regularly? They probably do. Like, there's probably one that goes kind of under that you don't really see, or... Because those things are heavy, and if you're doing, like, the actual benedictions, that head's going to lean forward, and that thing's going to go toppling off, and it's going to be terrible. He has them in his, in, in the next painting as well, but uh, it's not a chin strap so much as the dangly bits, so... I assume the chalice and thing that goes on top of the chalice, I think that has a name, are not... Patton? Maybe? Are those historically accurate for this time? Oh, no, nothing about this is historically accurate for the time. We don't even have papal tiaras yet, but... Let alone papal chin straps. So here's the second one of Fra Angelico. It's St. Lawrence receiving the treasures of the church from Pope Sixtus II. Right there for you. The treasures. 
There are some treasures happening there. It's the exact same face. Mm-hmm. And the exact same face again. He's very consistent. Cool. And then I don't know what this jaunty-hipped lad is doing. <laughs> right? It's it's just, yeah. It's one of those paintings that you're like, hmm, there's more going on to this story. Like the guy carrying all the silver behind them. Yeah, and... why has he got so many plates? Well, they're gonna have a party. I assume Florence is on fire symbolically. <laughs> yeah, he is. There you go. Okay, now we're gonna look at the Raphael one. This painting is famous for a reason so far beyond Pope Sixtus. He is like, he's the, the side note of this painting. When you see it, you'll immediately know why it's famous. But this painting is called uh, Madonna and Child with Pope Sixtus II and St. Barbara. You will know why this painting is famous. Oh yeah, okay. I've seen this there's the little the little fat angel babies. Yep, so those cherubs show up everywhere. If you are listening and you think of the most famous image of a cherub you can think of, this is what you're thinking of. It's actually the part of the bottom part of a much larger painting by Raphael. And it's beautiful. This one's also in the Vatican and it is just lovely to look at. St. Barbara's super super pretty. Yeah, she is. Look at her. Look at Sixtus. He's just kind of there, and he's like, go that way. He's trying. Okay. He he gets reference there. That's pretty cool. Raphael painted you. That is points, so. Tempest Pontificus. So, August 31st, 257 to August 6th, 258. One year for a score of 0 0.25. That's not very long. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Okay, so he is a saint. Uh, his feast day is August 6th, according to the Tridentine calendar. He shares it with Felicimus and Egeptius, the two of the deacons that he was martyred with. It's also concurrent with the Feast of the Transfiguration of the Lord. In 1969, they moved it to August 7th, so those two things would not be together. And earlier, when we talked about Sixtus I, we said that one of the Sixtuses would be referenced in the Roman canon of the Mass. It's this one, not number one. So Sixtus II. And he, surprisingly, for all that he has done, is not a patron saint of anything, so I think we need to make him the patron saint of Victoria's Secret Models. Yeah, absolutely. It is now done the church now has a patron saint for victoria's secret models specifically them why not not just lingerie models only victoria's secret models exactly so now we have an actual discussion here because we have to ask is he pizzazzy enough and is he popey enough does he deserve a papal bull Oh man, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to say no, cause like you don't think so. Well, I mean, he did some stuff and he died. Great, but like there was a whole swaths of his life that are just nothing. I agree with you, and it's it's funny because he is a heavy hitter in terms of the way that the church sees him. But aside from that piece, and and what makes him exciting is that the church thinks he's exciting. So the pieces that excite me about him, mainly that he ends up in these famous paintings, is not really that exciting as a story. There's not that much to him. 
to actually tell. He's not, again, a pope that I want to be like, oh, let me tell you about this pope man. I mean, his death is spectacular. He has that going for him, but I just, I can't bring myself to think papal bull when the people we've given it to are like Fabian and Calixtus and Clement and like big names that have done more than one substantial thing and that thing is not just dying so if if we gave a papal bull to everyone who was martyred we would have to go back and correct many things oh my god they would all have papal bulls uh yeah so that's not happening so with regret we send him to purgatory. No regrets. <laughs> ah, but I feel I feel a little bit bad about this one because he's such a heavy hitter. So he's going to get just the tiniest little bit of regret. And it's time for Pope Watch. All right. All right. So something adorable happened and we need to talk about it. I know what it is, but tell me anyway. I am going to tell you anyways, because maybe some other people haven't seen it, even though it went so viral. <laughs> On November 28th, just a couple days ago, at the general papal audience that Pope Francis was giving, a six-year-old boy strode right up onto the stage directly in front of everyone, everyone's sitting there and the Pope's uh, speaking and he just strides right on up there directly over to one of the Pope's Swiss guard who was standing at attention near the Pope. He takes the guard's hand, he pulls at his glove and when he realizes he's getting no response from this man, he wanders off and just kind of does a wander around the stage and he ends up behind the Pope's chair super cute moment but everyone's going oh my god what do we do there's a child on the stage and <laughs> to be fair the swiss guard looks really cool yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i know right and you kind of want to pull in that glove and just be like hey hey dude i mean this is not the first time that this has happened and as usual pope francis is completely unperturbed by the situation and when the mother was able to actually come up and retrieve her son she was able to explain very briefly to the Pope that they were from Argentina and that their son was hearing impaired and doesn't speak. So Pope Francis seems very, very charmed by this boy at this moment. He he gives the boy a blessing. He actually tells the mom to let him be. And then he turns to the archbishop beside him and says kind of jokingly that the boy was definitely an Argentinian boy because he was so undisciplined. And and for the record, this, this comment, this undisciplined thing, has been made into some less positive things online. But let's not forget that Pope Francis is from Argentina, and this is clearly a joke that Argentinian boys like himself are wild. He was an undisciplined child as well. Exactly. And he has, he has very much said as much in many of his interviews. This is like a nono Francesco moment where he is just like Grandpa Francis the grandpa who never had children. So, and and in case anybody was was worried that, you know, this moment was not as positive as it looked or that, you know, we're just kind of trying to sugarcoat it. We have Francis comment on this a little later because when he was speaking to visitors who had a more private meeting with him, the pope explained what the mother had told him about her son 
and what his thoughts were because someone asked him, like, what actually happened there? Because if you're watching it at the time, you would have no idea. So he said to this group of followers, he said, this boy cannot talk. He is mute, but he knows how to communicate and express himself. He has something which makes me reflect. He's free, free in an undisciplined way. And he makes me think, am I also free like this before God? When Jesus says we have to be like children, he is saying that we have the freedom a child has with his father. And what this child has displayed has preached to all of us. It's a very sweet moment. He's also requested prayers for the boy so that maybe one day with the right intervention and, of course, with prayer, he might be able to speak one day. And my thoughts on this, of course, is at least someone kept Francis awake. Because <laughs> if you watch him during the papal audiences, usually he gives his little bit. And then, of course, all the other bishops have to translate in all of the different languages that they do. And there's eight or nine languages that they cover. And Francis always looks like he's falling asleep. Well, he gets up so early, and he probably needs a nap. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think he just loves when little children come and delight him and bring him joy. So adorable moment that we've covered. Uh, the information for this Pope Watch, by the way, came from the National Catholic Reporter. And thanks to Cristobal, who CC'd me in it on Twitter right away as soon as it happens so i do love that we're getting news immediately from other people we don't have to look for things yeah i had just woken up i'd rolled out of bed and this thing was on my phone and i was like fabulous i love it so thanks krista with that in mind we have thank yous to make and the big thank you we have to make today is for the av club for including us in podmas that's super 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 exciting yeah that was wild yeah, I think some new people are finding us because of that. Um, I think that's definitely having an impact on our download numbers, which awesome, awesome, awesome. So thank you so much for including us. That is fantastic. And thank you to Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for being our big supporters. And to all of you who are listening, we didn't mention it at the time, but we did hit 35,000 downloads and we're on our way to 50, which is a big, big goal, and who to thunk? Who, who honestly would have thought that we could potentially hit it in our first year? That's crazy. That's absolutely nuts. So that's all thanks to you guys. So hopefully you continue to listen and you're having fun with us. We can be found on most major podcatching platforms, including Spotify. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Pontifax Pod. Feel free to message us. We usually always respond. If you want to send us a more long-form message, request, or otherwise get a hold of us, our email is pontifaxpod at gmail.com. For our bonus episodes and exclusive content, head over to our Patreon page and donate. That's patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. If you feel the need to buy us a tea, because we're not really coffee drinkers, but we do love tea, you can throw us a few bucks in our PayPal account at paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod. As always, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes or whatever you use. It really helps us get recommended to other people and allows more people to find us. Thank you and goodbye. Bye. Bye.